evening church. My name is Mark, and uh, I am officially now the pastoral care minister at uh, SBC. Had my first day of work on Thursday. Um, so, yeah. And, uh, yeah, I already learned how little work you can get done in one day with, uh, you know, several people coming and eating. And so, but, you know, God's good. Um, so, it's 2020. I'm sure you had a wonderful Christmas and New Year's and family time. On New Year's Day, I uh, got in the car and we were having friends over, so we realized early in the morning we didn't have enough stuff to host people. So got in the car and went for a drive, and it was immediately evident that uh, there were more runners on the road. I mean, it was like every street and not just professional runners, you know, like runners of all types, all shapes, all sizes, and, you know, and people weren't even struggling, you know, it was clear that this was the first time for some people, but they weren't even like wheezing or puffing or anything, they were smiling, and I could see the pride, and I could almost see the statement etched on their fa uh, forehead, uh, New Year's resolution intact, <laughs> and uh, the eight o'clock, uh, the eight the nine surprised me this morning because I asked this question I'm going to ask you. And I said, how many of you have a New Year's resolution? And not one person put their hand up. So I've got one. And then I said, oh, I've got one, if you're embarrassed. Any, any of you got a New Year's resolution? Let's try this group. Okay, so a few of you. You haven't given up yet. Well done. Um, I think what happens is we get so used to trying these things, failing, feeling bad about it, that eventually you just go, uh, why should I even? Um, and I'll, I want to tell you what mine is. Oh, let me ask my second question, since though there are some in this group that have a New Year's resolution. It's the fourth. How many of you still have your New Year's resolution intact? <laughs> oh, starting in February. <laughs> well done, yeah. So here's mine. And I never do New Year's resolutions. This is literally the first one since I think I was uh, a young adult. And so I've also given up uh, over the last years, but I'm holding it up to you. And my New Year's resolution is the Word of God. And what I feel the Lord has put on me, and I'm going to make a confession to you tonight as your pastoral care minister. Um, I feel like God has said to me, Mark, I want you to commit and I want you to read it every day. And you might be thinking, as a pastor, um, surely you read the Bible every day? Like, um, that's what we thought when we called you. And I'm going to be honest and um, say that's not true. And I've got some excuses. I've listed them. Um, <laughs> uh, here they go. Excuse number one, Sebastian. Uh, my son is four years old. He is a handful. Um, my daughter's worse. She's two years old. And um, they wake me up at five o'clock uh, every morning, and I have to make them breakfast, and m they have no concept of daddy's time. So excuse number one is I've got these kids that just uh, are vying for my attention. Um, excuse number two is... One, I think that's very applicable to us, and I'm going to confess it. I, I don't have an alarm clock. This is my alarm clock. That is a mistake. Okay? My cell phone, and I have an addictive personality. I see some people frowning. It wakes me up, and before just treating it like a normal alarm clock where you switch it off and leave it there and going and doing what I know is right to spend time first in the Lord's presence, I always well, I'll check a little bit of a news feed. And those of you who, like me, fall into that trap know that checking one thing turns into the time's gone. So my phone's a problem. I am naturally a hard worker. I love working hard. I will put everything into what I do. It makes me tired. Um, that's also my excuse. I'm busy. I work really hard, and I'm really tired. But... If I'm being really honest, even when the stars align and the kids are napping, both of them at the same time, and the work list is checked off, 
I don't know if you've ever experienced that, having every single thing you ever had to do fully checked off, but let's be hypothetical here. The work list is fully checked off, and um, load shedding has caused the battery on the phone to be dead. The stars are perfectly aligned to sit down and spend time in God's Word. I still don't do it. Because the truth is, none of those excuses are the real reason. The real reason is me. I don't want to. And I came to a realization um, that it's kind of like my relationship with my wife. Because I haven't always been this way. Um, I used to read it nearly every day. And uh, I loved it. Man, I'm going to tell you some stories towards the end. Really, I want to encourage you and inspire you to get into the word of how God has intersected my life through his word. Um, But before I allowed all the excuses to kind of be the reason, um, kind of lost my train of thought. Uh, So the real reason is me. And I've realized this. I need to take ownership of that. While I'm blaming the kids, man, they've now got a free pass. Because they're, they're going to be there for a long time. And I don't know if any of you have done this. Like, okay, when I finish that, then I'll be better at this thing. That, that's important to me. When I finish, okay, in high school, I said to myself, Mark, you've got to focus on your studies. You've got to focus on matric. And as soon as you finish with matric and that important stuff, you're going to have so much time. And then, you know, university happens. And then... Uh, then you get married and marriage happens, and that reminds me, that was my train of thought, Anita. Okay, I'm back. Uh, so, Anita and I have been married 10 years. We just hit our 10-year anniversary. And uh, it hasn't always been easy. Um, we, God has blessed me, and we have a wonderful marriage. This morning she sat, I don't know why, she sat in that chair over there, and I sat over here, and someone actually said to me, is, is there a problem? <laughs> There's no problem. I, I don't know why, why she did that. Um, but we, we are in a really sweet spot. Uh, the reality is you cannot stay in a sweet spot permanently. That's just not real life. And a few years ago, we were in a tough spot, um, and it wasn't even our fault. It was circumstantial. Church was in a tough place. Elders' meetings were going on uh, most nights. I remember coming home 11 o'clock at night sometimes. Anita hadn't been able to get either child um, to sleep. And she was just broken. And that was happening far too often, and I wasn't there. And one day she just got honest with me and said, Mark, we're not in a good place. And if you carry on going in this way, and your reasons are good, the reason was to serve you, to serve this church. Um, I I don't know where we're going to end up. And so the decision was taken to, I stopped attending uh, eldership evening meetings. I remained an elder, uh, did my eldership duties on a Sunday, but uh, I just, Matt was gracious and gave me uh, a couple of months to work on the most important stuff. And it was so interesting because Anita and I were disconnected, kind of like how I'm explaining it is with uh, the word at the moment. We were a bit disconnected. And that first night, I still remember we'd... uh, both been home. When we were both home, it was easier to get the kids to sleep. They're finally asleep. We finally just got ourselves. Technology is gone. We're sitting across a table. It's time to connect. It was so awkward. I had no idea what I was going to say. I thought she had an idea because this was her plan, right? Okay, waited. She had no idea what to say either. And that first night, I was so dejected and demoralized, going to bed wondering, man, even when we create the time... We are struggling to connect. But isn't it, doesn't it make perfect sense? You have disconnected over a long period of time. It's going to take time and commitment to come back to it. And so every night, we sat down until the awkwardness went away. And the love stirred again. And we are in an awesome place. And it's like that with God's word. When you've been away from it for a while, you come back to it, you read it, there might be a bit of distance. It might feel like, is God really speaking to me still? Is he still there? Am I kind of left out on the outside? I want to challenge you to join me. This is my goal for the sermon. It's 2020. 
It's a new year. So with a smile on my face, I pick up my Bible. I blow the holiday dust off. And I say to my king, I will read it every day. And I know what's going to happen. I'm going to fall in love with it again. And it's going to get to the point where those moments don't even have to line up. And I'm going to be drawn I'm going to see God's word lying there at an unplanned moment, and I'm just going to be drawn and go, Lord, I just want to be with you in your presence. It is so good. And I want to challenge you, church. Can you imagine what it would be like to be a part of a church where as a, corp- uh, a corporate group, we are hungry for God's word. We are in God's word. He is speaking to us. So if you are like me, and maybe it's grown a bit cold, and maybe you've even got decent excuses. I want to challenge you. Let them go. They're just going to hold you back. Face it. It's you. And when you face yourself, you can overcome it. My first day in the office, I got given a book called Christian Counseling. And um, I read the opening uh, chapter, and it was so enlightening. And the, the author said, the problem with most uh, commitments is people don't realize that failure is a part of achieving any goal. And so when you fail, whatever it might be, maybe my goal, I'm going to fail. Day four, I'm still intact, but I'm probably going to fail fairly soon. And our response to failure is often, oh, well, I'm no good at this. I'm going to maybe come back to this later and try again when I'm stronger. And what this, uh, the author of this book, Christian Counseling, said was, the people that overcome any addiction or, or reach any goal understand That failure is part of it. And when that failure comes, the correct response to the failure is to immediately recommit to the goal. Immediately recommit to the goal. And so I really stand before you confidently. You might be saying, Mark, shouldn't you preach this sermon at the end of the year? (laughs) Like after we've seen you, you know, get it right. And I don't mind giving you some feedback at the end of the year. But there's a confidence in me, knowing my weakness and knowing that I probably will fail, of knowing, no, I also I can commit, and I know this is important, and I know God has spoken to me, and I think God is speaking to you. There are several people from the morning service who have already WhatsApped me and admitted, I'd stopped reading the Bible, but I've just picked it up again. Thank you. And may that be your experience as we go through this tonight. 1 Timothy chapter 4 verse 8 says that... um, exercise is uh, a little bit profitable. So those runners that I saw running uh, on New Year's Day, they're after a good thing. It's not saying don't do it. It's saying do it, and it is of some benefit. Uh, I used to go to gym. I know it doesn't look like it. Um, But uh, I used to have an accountability partner, and we used to go to gym a lot, and those were good times. So go for that if that is your, your goal. But it's only of little benefit. 1 Timothy 4 verse 8 goes on to say that godliness is beneficial for all things. All things in this life. I'm not calling you to a ritualistic, legalistic pursuit, checking off a a box 366 times, Salipia, this year, and going, yes, I did it. You'll get very little out of that. But if you approach God's word, seeking him, saying, God, I get to speak with the author of this book while I read it, and I know that you can speak to me. If you approach it with a hungry heart, then it won't be legalistic, and I'm telling you, it will be beneficial in every part of your life. This is more than a book. I lived in um, Oman, and it's a Muslim country, and when I got there, I bought a Quran. I don't know how you feel about that. But um, I was not, some people said, don't buy a Quran. No, 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 it's going to confuse you. It's dangerous. Guys, the Quran is a, a, a normal book written by a man. And it doesn't make a lot of sense at all, even in the original. It is just a mishmash of ideas and th- thoughts put together, and there is nothing uh, scary about it. So why did I read it? I read it because 
I knew that it was an important book to all of my Muslim friends, and I wanted to understand them better so that I could preach the gospel. That was my whole goal. I hated reading the Quran. It was boring. It was terrible. Um, but every time I read it, I was, Lord, just show me something in here that I can use when I'm speaking to my friends about you. But what I learned was, and I find this very interesting, I have no fear over the Quran, and it has no hold over me. But my Muslim friends are very afraid of the Bible, and they should be. They are not being naive to be afraid of this book. They believe, some of them said this to me, Mark, there's a special power on this book. Amen. <laughs> Mark, if, if I read this book, it's going to change my life. I've seen it happen. Amen. And the, the people on the other side get that there's something about this book. They don't understand what it is. They don't understand that it is the Holy Spirit. But they get it. And Christians tend to be so blasé and passive and distant towards their own book, which is so powerful. The base text that I want you to turn to is Second uh, Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. I'll just give you a moment or two to turn there. doesn't sound like too many pages are going, so maybe people are using digital stuff, um, which is fine. Second Timothy 3, verse 16. And it says this. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That's like one of my favorite verses. That's wow. I want to read that again. All Scripture. All. Some people have said to me, and it surprised me with it, no, no, this part is good, but I'm not so sure about that part. But this is not what 2 Timothy 3 teaches us. All Scripture, in its entirety, is God-breathed. Some translations say inspired by God. That's the power that's in this book. Every single word is inspired. Some uh, people mistakenly think that maybe God just puts um, his thoughts into the writer's minds, and then they were allowed to kind of write it in their own way, to express it. And that's not what this is saying, because that would allow space for error. This is saying that the very word written down was inspired by God. That's powerful. And Jesus in uh, Matthew uh, just want to make sure I quote the right. Uh, Matthew 22, verse 43 and 44. You can digitally go there, but don't spend too much time turning there. I'm just going to read this and give you an example. Jesus said this. He says, uh, How then does David say in the Spirit, The Lord said to my Lord, at my, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies my footstool. Jesus says, quoting the Old Testament, the Psalms, how does David say in the Spirit? The Holy Spirit caused him to say it. It makes no sense, the very sentence he uses. He says, when he first writes it down, I often wonder, what, was he, what did he think when he saw what the Holy Spirit just wrote down there? It says, the Lord, there's one God, said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And that only makes sense after Jesus comes. And after Jesus explains that he is the Son of God, and he is the one who uh, God places at his right hand, and he is the one who, and so it's a prophetic word talking about Jesus. It makes perfect sense. It's at the end of the story where you go, oh, that's how it works. But imagine what it was like for the, the writer to write down the words, the Lord said to my Lord. But why did he write it? Was it his own idea? No. Inspired by God. Jesus tells it, it was written in the Spirit. Church, this doctrine of inspiration is under attack. It wouldn't surprise me if some of you are not sure about it. 
Um, as I've been chatting to people, some even really strong Christians, people that I respect and admire, shock me sometimes when they say things like, the most important thing is to love Jesus, and the Bible has some good bits. There's some other bits I'm not sure about. I just had a conversation with a woman this holiday where she said that. I, my jaw dropped. I'm still hoping I kind of misunderstood her because that's not what we are taught about Scripture. It's not open to uh, debate. It's not right in some places and maybe wrong in some places. Every word is divinely inspired, and we, that means it's infallible, inerrant. There are no mistakes you can trust it. One of the reasons why I think Christians don't read it or have set it down is maybe uh, we're listening a little bit too much to uh, new scientists or atheism is on the rise. In the United States, it's one of the fastest growing religions and they are attacking scripture left, right and center. And I'm going to share one or two facts with you because I think you're going to face them soon. And I'd rather you face them tonight where I can uh, counter them, then you face them out there with someone who's coming to you going, do you, can you seriously take the Bible? Can you take the Bible seriously? Do you know this? How many of you have read the book, uh, The Case for Christ, Lee Strobel? Okay. So Lee Strobel is uh, an atheist at the beginning of the story, and he is motivated to check the historicity historicity of the Bible because he wants his wife, who's just become a Christian, to uh, recant because they are living the party life and she's become pretty bland and boring since, since she got saved. So he says at the start of the book, I was motivated. I'm a legalistic journalist. This was my skill set. I wanted to check the facts and I was going to come back to her and prove to her that there are flaws. You can't trust this. Uh, come back to me. And at the end of the story, after checking the facts, and he didn't go to Christians, he went to historians. He went to the, the beginning. And after going through that whole journey, he ends the book by saying, after considering all of the evidence, I came to understand that it required more faith to believe that Jesus is not the Son of God than to accept, based on the evidence, he really is. And he ends up, getting saved. It's a wonderful story. And he puts a lot of the information I'm going to say tonight into the book. So if you've read it, this won't be news to you. But I do want to uh, warn you about the other side. Have any of you heard of a man called Bart Ehrman? Only one. Good. I don't want you to, to hear about him. He is not um, a religious teacher that we should be following. He... Uh, He's the opposite of Lee Strobel. So he starts off as a Christian who loves the Word of God. This is his testimony. I loved the Word of God. I believed in its inerrancy. And because I believed it was the in inerrant Word of God, I wanted to study it and become an expert in it. And so he goes and he becomes, and he is one of the top uh, academic New Testament scholars in the world today. His work is factually sound. He is highly regarded in the academic community. But the sad part of his story was, after looking at the very same facts that Lee Strobel looked at, and Lee Strobel came to the conclusion that faith is in Jesus Christ is the correct response, the opposite thing happens to him. He sees the facts, and it's not like what he thought or what he was taught at church, and suddenly faced with the facts, his faith is severely tested, and the first thing he lets go of is the Bible, he remained a Christian for 15 years liberally. But the natural trajectory of anyone who first lets go of the Bible is the ending point. He then became an atheist. Now, if God can't protect his word, if God can't um, keep his word safe, then he can't be God. And these two facts I've come across from atheist friends that are debating me. And I was surprised. No one had shared this with me. So I'm sharing it with you because I don't want you to be surprised. The first thing uh, Bart Ehrman struggled with was there were no um, autographs. So an autograph is an original copy. So all of the New Testament books that we have, the earliest ones we have, are copies. 
But it would be stronger evidence if we could have in our possession the very originals. And he suspected, he expected that we did have them. And when he investigated and realized we don't have them, that was a, f a problem for him. And then the second one, which I knew about the first one, the second one I didn't really know about. We currently have 5,800 copies of um, the New Testament in Greek. We have 10,000 in Latin and uh, thousands of others in other languages, which is fantastic. No historical book can compare. Any historical work, um, it is, if they can find five copies, ten copies, they're happy, and no one questions it. We have tens of thousands of copies of the New Testament, which is the most well-attested historical book. When you look at that side of it, you are in awe of how God has protected it, and he has. But here is an issue that we should know about. There are 400,000 variants, so slight differences, minuscule, in fact. I wanna, he won't mention that part to you. I'm mentioning that part to you. Almost irrelevant, but 400,000 variants between all the copies. Most of them are spelling, word order, and very few of them are what we call um, meaningful or significant. In fact, the total number of significant variants out of all of these copies, are you ready for this number? Remember, there's 400,000 variants. It's a big number. Total number of significant variants that he doesn't mention when he does his talks, at most, 20. 100,000 words in the New Testament. 20,000 copies. There's some maths going on over here. I know some of you aren't too interested in this. So I'm going to move on fast. 20 at most significant errors, and not errors, significant variants, and none of them are impactful on any doctrine. They're just slightly confusing in the text. It is one one thousandth of the total. So if you come across this and you get challenged on this, I want you to know that God has not only inspired every single word in the Bible, He has also preserved it in a miraculous way. No, even its greatest critics admit there is no other book that has been preserved to this extent. In fact, if you want to disregard the Bible, and this is atheist saying this, you have to actually disregard every other historical work of literature. It's inerrant. And Jesus, I want to quote um, Luke 16, verse 31. Jesus held the Word of God above any experience. In Luke chapter 16, verse 31, he's telling the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And the rich man dies, and Lazarus dies, and Lazarus uh, goes to heaven, and the rich man goes to hell. And we pick up the story in the part where the rich man's suffering, and he looks up, and he can see Lazarus in heaven, and Abraham standing next to him, and he says to Lazarus, or he says to Abraham, please send Lazarus down, and let him dip his finger in this well so that he can just drop one drop, a moment of relief in my pain, of water on my tongue, because I am in total and utter suffering. And Abraham says, there is a divide. No one from above can come below, and no one from below can come above. And so uh, the rich man says, then Abraham, please send Lazarus back. As a ghost as a re resurrected dead man, to my family and warn them. And this very powerful end to the story says, Abraham says to him, they have Moses, that's the Old Testament, the first few books, and the prophets, that's the rest. If they won't hear them, if they won't hear, don't worry about that, if they won't hear this, 
then even if a dead man were to return from the grave, they won't believe. Think about that. Doesn't matter what the amazing experience is. And you might go, maybe they'll think there's a hallucination. Now, I'm talking about a real dead person returning from the grave and maybe punching you in the stomach to make you believe he's really there and it's not just in your imagination. And it's your ancestor, uncle, grandfather, whoever, and he's telling you, hell is real, I've been there. Get your life right. And what Jesus is saying in the story is, if you can turn away from the very words of God, then no experience can save you. It is preeminent. It is above any experience. In 1 Peter, sorry, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 19, I want you to turn there. Anita said I really needed to unpack this one a bit more. I kind of just rushed it a bit this morning. We've got a little bit of time. So 2 Peter 1, verse 19. Peter says something very powerful. Um, yeah. I'm in 1 Peter. So if you made that mistake, make sure you're in 2 Peter. Okay, 2 Peter 1 verse 19. Uh, I'm going to go two verses earlier than that. Three verses. Verse 16. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory, when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. That sets the context for this very powerful next verse. What is he speaking about? He's speaking about the transfiguration of Christ, being up on the mountain. Moses comes back from the dead or however you want, an apparition. Moses and Elijah are there, right? They are seeing Jesus glorified. They are hearing. How many of you have prayed? You can be honest. I've done this. Lord, I would love to hear your audible voice. That would be an awesome quiet time this morning. Just say something to me. It's never happened. I've heard other people say it's happened. It's never happened to me. But they heard the audible voice of God saying, this is my beloved son. It was a fantastic experience. And, and Peter doesn't say it, so I'll just say if it was me, that's how I would feel. Walking on water, can't beat that. Getting fed from a few loaves of bread and fish, can't beat that. That was the number one experience of his three years' time with Jesus. When he mentions it, but then he says this in verse 19. And we have the prophetic word. He's making a case for belief. And he's speaking about this really awesome experience he's had and this eyewitness account that he's had, and even hearing the word of God. But then he goes further and stronger. And he said, so those of you that are seeking these experiences, he says, you have something more. The prophetic word of God available to all of us surpasses it all. Church, we cannot have a low view of scripture. We cannot let our Bibles sit on our shelves. We cannot let it gather dust uh, in the corners and spend all of our time on social media and checking this, this, and this. I said in my last sermon, I, uh, I listened to one of the greatest sermons in preparation for that, and it's been on YouTube for 15 years, and it's got 48 views. 48 views. Fantastic sermon available to all of us. And I'm not judging you. I wouldn't have listened to it either if I wasn't preparing for the sermon. But the point is, there's gold on YouTube. Not all of it's rubbish. But we're not looking for the gold. We're looking for the cats. <laughs> we're not spending time in, our word, in the Word because right now I'm laughing at this video of the panda sneezing. You guys have all seen these things. Okay? And it's funny, but we, I also want you to get serious with it, is... There's, by the way, I have no problem with people spending some time on that. But if you are spending more time on that than here, then you must know you've got a problem. It, it can be no surprise that we're struggling in our faith. That we're wondering where God is sometimes. Why he's not answering prayer. Why he doesn't speak to us. 
Jesus held scripture over any experience. Peter held scripture over the most fantastic uh, experience. Some people believe that the Bible is old and no longer relevant. And whenever I hear people say that, I think, I don't think you've read it. And some people say to me, no, I have read it. And you know why it doesn't do anything for some people? It actually explains it within itself. It happened to me when I first started reading Scripture. Nothing really happened. I remember I was 14. Someone said to me, you need to read. I just got saved. You need to read the Bible every day. So I, I did. I tried. I think it was like three or four days a week. I was pretty happy with it. But it was so legalistic. The, the, the translation I had was 1800, and it was, thou, it was Shakespearean. I didn't understand a word. When I, three years later, my Bible-led teacher at Selborne gave me a copy of an NIV, and for the first time I could read Scripture in slightly more comprehensible language. But even then, it didn't necessarily just shoot out at me and start doing what I'm trying to suggest to you it can do. It took time, and one day I remember reading it and suddenly just realizing, wow, God is speaking to me. And then I came across a verse that said, there are people who do not understand Scripture because it is spiritually discerned. The Holy Spirit is the one who teaches His Word to us. Don't think you can just pick up this book like I've been distant from Anita, that's why I shared that story at the start, for months and think we can just sit across from each other and talk and commune, it's going to take time, even if you are a Christian, to reconnect with God, to commit to it. But you're also going to need to pray. You're going to need to say, Lord, you are the author of this book. You are the one who can help me to understand. I don't read anything now without first praying and saying, Holy Spirit, will you give me something from your word today that's for me? And I expect him to. Does it happen every day? No. Does it happen a lot? Yeah. Hebrews 4 verse 12 says, The Bible is living and active. It's alive. It's active. It's not just some history book. Anyone who ever said that to me, I know, even if you've read it, then you haven't communed with God. The Holy Spirit has not yet come upon you and is not yet revealing the Word of God to you, don't give up. What should, what should the response to that be if that's you? Keep reading it and pray and say, Lord, fill me with your Spirit and help me to understand your Word. It is only by your Spirit that I can understand your Word. That's the correct response. My last story, and I think this was the one that got people. I got a, a text saying that, Mark, thank you for your service this morning, and I just want you to know that my son, teenager, I walked into his room, and he wasn't on his iPad. He was in the Word. Thank you. The seed was planted. I think this story got him. Are you ready? I want you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 25. So this is Old Testament. Go back before Chronicles, before Kings, before 2 Samuel. Okay, 1 Samuel chapter 25. I'm going to make this real life for you. I was 25 years old. I was at one of the lowest points. I had, when I finished school, I didn't study, I didn't go to university, I went on a ship, I was obedient to the Lord, it was a missionary ship, and I, it was an amazing experience. I gained so much life experience, hopefully treasures in heaven, can't be sure, but that's the goal. But treasures on earth, zero. <laughs> Progression towards success on earth, zero. If you'd looked at me at 25, I was six years behind the game, seven years. My friends had finished, they were chartered accountants, they were out on their own, they were making it happen, and here I was coming back from the mystery ship with nothing in my bank account, nothing that I've studied, and my parents had lost everything. 
They were wealthy when I left, so it was an easy decision. Oh, yes, I'll come back and all the money in the world is available to me to study. And when I come back, the, we didn't even have a house. My parents had to move into their holiday house in Sinsa, and that wasn't working. I, I wanted to be here. I wanted to be in, a part of the life of this church. And my brother was in Berea living in a garage, one bedroom. If you know my brother, but I'm also like him, so I don't really throw him under the bus, but it was messy. <laughs> it was dust. I don't know if he cleaned once. And I had the mattress on the floor. It was the only way I could be close enough to the church to stay in the life of the church. We had a car. My grandmother died. It was my, my car. That was what I was told before I left. And it became my brother's car in my absence. And I was just the passenger. I had no possessions. We had no toilet. Don't ask and I won't tell. <laughs> we had no running water. I brushed my teeth. And this is when I hit my down. This is where the story starts. I went out the one morning, and I brushed my teeth at the hose pipe in the garden. And I was thinking about a girl in this church that I had a huge crush on, and she wasn't interested. And as I'm brushing my teeth in this garden, I'm going, oh, she's not interested. What have you got to offer? You are brushing your teeth at a hose pipe. You are sleeping on the floor of this dusty garage on a mattress. Who's going to join this fiasco? I was so down. I remember going into that garage. I remember going to the word desperate. I was really down. And God communed with me and spoke to me from 1 Samuel chapter 25, verse 28 and 30, to 31. It's the story of David and Abigail. And Abigail says this to David. David is on his way to kill her husband. David is furious with her husband. David is a wild man. Living in the wild with these wild, unruly men. They are hairy and stinky. They are hungry. They need help. And they've helped this guy in the past, and he's not listening. And David's got a short fuse in this moment. And he says, guys, gird your swords. Get on your horses. We are going to take this guy out. And he's on his way. He has not prayed. He has not sought the Lord. He is acting in anger. And Abigail hears of this. She's the wife of this terrible man. And she races out towards David and she says this thing to him. And as she speaks, God speaks to me. Because I realize while I'm reading the story, this is what David felt like at the hose pipe, brushing his teeth, beard all over the place. And God sends this woman to him and she says this. Please forgive the trespass of your maidservant, for the Lord will certainly make for my Lord an enduring house, because my Lord fights the battles of the Lord. As I read that, I was like, yes, Lord, I'm where I am because I'm being obedient to you. I fight for you. I'm not chasing my own kingdom. And evil is not found in you throughout your days. I couldn't really hold to that, but I was like, okay, help me with that, Lord. Yet a man has risen to pursue you and seek your life. But the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living with the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the pocket of a sling. And as I read that, God just went boom. Because I knew what she was doing. She was reminding David of his greatest victory in the Lord. And Goliath went down with one stone. Don't forget that God is with you and what he's done for you. And as I read that, I felt like God was saying to me, Mark, don't forget that I'm with you and what I've done for you. And I started to think, Lord, you provided 200,000 rand for me to go and be a missionary when I left with nothing. Lord, when I left, my dad didn't know you. My mom didn't know you. They were atheists. My brother didn't know you. They all got saved in the time that I was away. My greatest prayer got answered while I was serving the Lord on the mission field. And I started to think again and again how he had come through. And then she says, And it shall come to pass when the Lord has done for my Lord according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you. 
And I felt God say, Mark, I've got promises for you. I've got places for you to get to and go. And you're not there now, and you're in a tough place. But all of them are going to come to pass. And I was mainly thinking about this girl. And I felt like God said, I got that. And I remember as I read it, thinking, but Lord, look at me. How will she be attracted to this? What have I got to offer? And he told me, she will be attracted to your faith in me. It will be evident to her by the way that you live your life. When I met Anita, her beauty, I remember that I was the Bible study leader. This girl walks in. I was like, "Uh -uh." okay. It just took me away. And she had suitors. I was up against it. There was a dentist. <laughs> there, there, there was a chartered accountant. They were after her, big time. One of them was from First City, and he even got her to go while I was dragging my feet. He got her to go to First City and check it out with him. He, we went on a mission trip, and he, like, I'm like, trying to play it cool, and you know, he's just going straight up to her in Afrikaans, going, Machtig, yes, prachtig. He was going for her, shamelessly. I often ask the question, why are you, I don't say it literally to her, but I think it, why are you with me? And I sometimes ask her, and she says, Mark, you know, the thing that attracted me to you the most was your faith. God's promise to me in the garden by the hose pipe years earlier was, she's coming. I've got this. And she's not going to see the Uno. I was driving an Uno. That was how, where I took her in the, the, uh, my first Uno. I even bought to stay soft, put it in the back so it would smell nice. <laughs> I had nothing to offer. And she had every reason. And she said, one of the things the Lord said to her before she chose to, when I asked her to marry me, the Lord clearly said to her, you guys are going to have some Uh, tough times, particularly financially. It's just part of the package. That was the warning he gave her. Are you ready for that? And she committed to that. She saw something in me that Abigail saw in David. Abigail looked at David. She didn't see a, a wild man in the bush. She saw God's anointed, the future king of Israel, and she spoke with wisdom to remind him of who he was and who he was going to be in God. And that day, even though I didn't have a woman helping me with that, the Lord spoke to me and he gave me peace. I remember closing the Bible that day and having the exact same circumstances and leaving with a smile on my face and being able to let go of that other girl that I really wanted. And I'm so glad I didn't get. God is good. I could tell you a thousand stories, literally, we're at the end of the time. But I've seen God's Word interact my life in big and small ways, time and time again. It is profitable. It is not just inerrant. It is profitable in every aspect of your life. Would you consider joining me? Maybe you are sitting here and you're well-versed, well-read, and in a good space. Would you commit again to this thing? I can tell you it sneaks up on you. Excuses come out of nowhere. Those first kids are going to test this. If you're in a place like I've been where maybe you haven't been as committed to it, are you willing to say to the Lord, I'm sorry and I'm ready to come again? This is important. This is non-negotiable. I will come to your word. I know it may be not going to shine out to me at first, but I'm going to keep coming until you speak clearly to me so that I can follow you more closely. If you've maybe never read it, can I offer you some guidelines? Very quickly, short. These are the ones people have already WhatsApp me that they're doing. Start in Luke. Luke is a gospel to the Gentiles. We are Gentiles. The language in Luke is perfect for us. Matthew is a gospel to the Hebrews. And there's lots of terminology in there that would make sense to someone who is of the Hebrew culture that we're going to miss. Should I not read Matthew, Mark? No, read all the books. But if you haven't read and you don't know where to start and you always get tripped up because you start in Genesis and you hit Leviticus and you go, wow, yeah, I'm done. Okay? 
You're making a mistake. That's not, in my opinion, that's not the best way to start. Start in Luke. Then don't read John, it's in my opinion, because it's the gospel story again. It's a little bit repetitive. It's good to go through all the gospel stories. But Luke was originally written with Acts as one book. Same author. It follows on. It's a perfect second book to read. So skip John going to Acts. And then I would recommend reading the rest of the New Testament from there, the letters to the churches. When you finish the New Testament, I would go back to the start where you haven't read the Gospels and read them now because you're in a rhythm. And then once you finish the New Testament twice, go back to Genesis. It's good. I'm not saying don't read the Old Testament. Some people tell me, no, I only read the New Testament. You've missed the boat. The verse I just used to show you that God really impacted me is from the Old Testament. And go back to Genesis and go for it. When you get to Leviticus, give yourself a break. You know, don't have to read all of the lists of the sons of this and this and that. You can if you want. Go for it. But don't feel guilty if you go, you know what? I think I'm going to just find something a little bit more with a bit more meat on it. It's okay. Man, I would almost skip Leviticus if I was reading the Old Testament for the first time and kind of go back to that right at the end, just to round it out, to say, okay, I know I've finished the whole thing. Find a consistent time every day. Find a consistent place. I'm actually giving you study skills for kids to learn for their exams because they work. You know what happens when you study in the same place every time? Even when you get there by accident, you know what you feel like doing? Studying. It sounds weird, but that's how our habitual nature works. I've got a couch. It's in a special part of the house where the kids can't find me. It's the perfect place. <laughs> so in the morning, I start with the word, and I hear them, Daddy, Daddy, and I know, I've still got 10 minutes before they find me. I was like, Lord, thank you for the sovereign gift of this couch in this hidden room. <laughs> Get accountability partner. I've got a wonderful accountability partner. She's my wife. She kicks me out of bed in the morning because I gave her permission. I said, love, I'm committed to reading the Bible every day. What happened the next day? I overslept. She heard the alarm. Boom. Hey, you said you were going to go pray. Go. So I did. She slept. But, man, I would have missed it that day. Thank you for that accountability partner. Some of you Africans looking at me going... I've got me. I don't have a person next to me to kick me out of bed. What do I do? Well, when I was your age, I had a friend who kicked me out of bed in the morning with a phone and said, hey, we're gymming. Little profit, as you can see. And we gymmed for years, committing each other to that. Why don't you get a friend, go down to the beach and say, let's take on this challenge. We'll read the Bible together. And on the days you feeling weak, I'll encourage you to be here. And on the days I'm feeling weak, you encourage me. Get an accountability partner. Ask the author to help you understand. I cheated in a theological test. Because I asked the person who invented the theology to give me the answer to the question. It was a test on the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And I remember not knowing the answer to one of the questions. And I went, Holy Spirit? This is you. You know the answer to this question, and I can ask you. I felt like I was cheating, and I smiled as I had that thought. Man, we have the author of the book with us, and I've walked you through where to start. Okay.